This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. All persons having business before the Honorable, the Supreme Court of the United States are admonished to draw near and give their attention. Landmark Cases, C-SPAN's special history series, produced in partnership with the National Constitution Center. Exploring the human stories and constitutional dramas behind 12 historic Supreme Court decisions. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court. Quite often, and many of our most famous decisions are ones that the court took that were quite uh, unpopular. Let's go through a few cases that illustrate very dramatically and visually what it means to live in a society of different people who help stick together because they believe in a rule of law. Good evening. Tonight's landmark case is 1965's Griswold versus Connecticut. With a 7-2 decision, the justices in this case established a constitutional right to privacy and set in motion expansion of privacy rights that continue to today over the next several decades. To give you a sense of Griswold's continuing importance in our society, we put together a short video that uh, is modern-day references to the Griswold case. Let's watch. Griswold v. Connecticut, which recognized a right to privacy in the Constitution. I agree with the Griswold Court's conclusion that marital privacy extends to contraception and availability of that. Griswold v. Connecticut. Griswold v. Connecticut. Back in the 60s, there was a case known as Griswold v. Connecticut. The, the um, holding in Griswold. Let's talk a little bit about uh, Griswold. Griswold talked about uh, emanations and penumbras. What is it about Griswold versus Connecticut that gives it its lasting importance? We're going to learn about it and the history of this case and the interesting people involved with it. Our two guests at the table for the next 90 minutes. Helen Alvarez is a law professor at George Mason University's Antonin Scalia Law School. She is the author of numerous books on family law. Her latest is called Putting Children's Interests First. Rachel Rebouchet is a law professor and associate dean for research at Temple University in Philadelphia, uh, co-author of a book called Governance Feminism, an introduction. So let me just ask the basic question, uh, why is Griswold so important? Well, Griswold was a landmark case when it was decided in 65, five years after the birth control pill you know, hit U.S. markets. It's a landmark case now because it set the path for cases deciding abortion rights, sexuality, sexual expression, same-sex marriage. It also, in 65 and now, is a warning to states about how to use the criminal justice system to police people's most intimate, fundamental decisions. And what are your thoughts on the landmark nature of this case? Yes, it's a declaration of a right of privacy, which is not in the text of the Constitution, and all of the justices' discussion of is it safe for judges to be finding rights that are deemed fundamental, very important liberty rights, um, that are not in the text of the Constitution? 
how do we find these? How far do we go? And it set the path, uh, as Rachel said, for all the later decisions on sexual expression and marriage based on that finding of privacy. Is there a conservative consensus about Griswold? No. I would say there are many people who, citing a couple of the cases Griswold cited, the right of parents to decide about where they're sending their kids to school, parents deciding about kids' education, a lot of conservatives would say, yes, those rights exist. Some would say it's always dangerous when five unelected justices or more discover a right that's not in the text of the Constitution, how far will they go? Is there a liberal point of view that encapsulates Griswold? That Griswold tied the right to birth control, the right to contraceptive use, to a broader agenda for reproductive rights. And over the years since 1965, uh, that agenda has been more closely associated with the women's rights movement and with feminism and with women's equality in education, politics, and the workplace. Is that a consensus? I'm not sure it's a consensus, but I think when you ask most who think of themselves as progressives, their take on why Griswold's important, they would come up with some of those reasons. Well, there, I mentioned there was an interesting cast of characters for this case. The namesake uh, is Estelle Griswold. And Helen, who was she? So Estelle Griswold is a woman who has a very serious interest in the availability of contraception. Uh, she is married to someone in the State Department. She ends up doing some international work in this area. And she decides that Connecticut's law is old-fashioned and needs to be done away with. And she decides to form a clinic and to deliberately violate the law and get before the court and get this Connecticut statute looked at once and for all. We're also going to meet Dr. C. Lee Buxton. Who was he? Um, Charles Lee Buxton was the chair of Yale's um, OBGYN uh, uh, department, uh, the only medical school at the time that Griswold was decided in the state. And he, with Estelle Griswold, uh, came up with the strategy, the test case that would become Griswold versus Connecticut, to strike down the ban on contraceptive use for married people. He felt a personal responsibility to the patients he saw suffering with pregnancy complications who couldn't access uh, legal contraceptives in the state. There's a female lawyer we're going to learn about named Katie Rohrbach. Who is she? She is a real figure in history, right? I think she was the only woman in her class when she graduated from Yale Law School. She was associated with a number of really um, significant uh, lawsuits, including not only this case, uh, which she uh, worked on through the Supreme Court. She didn't actually do the arguing in front of the justices, but she took it up to the Connecticut Supreme Court. Uh, she was later associated with Defense of the Black Panthers. Uh, she felt very strongly about women's rights and about access to contraception among those. And our last uh, cast of characters before we get to the justices later on is Thomas Emerson. Emerson argued the case for uh, the Griswold legal team before the Supreme Court. He was a Yale law professor who took over from Fowler Harper, one of the original engineers of the test litigation, when um, Professor Harper fell sick. You were both talking before uh, the program started about the Yale connection. So many aspects of this case seem to uh, intersect with, with Yale. Uh, is it just a coincidence? Uh, well, it was in Connecticut, and Yale has been a preeminent law school for a great deal of time. 
uh, and uh, probably you could say known at that time and now, although I'm not a historian of Yale, for being unafraid to do controversial things, and this was indeed controversial. Uh, you have um, Griswold is married to someone from Yale. You have Dr. Buxton, who is on the faculty at Yale. Emerson is on the faculty of Yale. Rohrbach, um, she had family who was at Yale. She also graduated from Yale, so quite a few uh, links. And so also, apparently, Estelle Griswold made a mean martini and had cocktail parties <laughs> at which they would gather, and it was over one cocktail party that they came up with the strategy for one of the early cases that preceded Griswold. So there's that. that. Under, <laughs> underestimate the power of social That's connections, right. right. So this was referred to as a Comstock law. Can you give us a quick history of Comstock laws? So uh, the federal Comstock law is passed in 1873. It's named after Anthony Comstock, who is a postal worker, but also uh, founds the New York Society for the Suppression of Vice. At some point, he famously brags that he has confiscated 160,000 pounds of books, uh, 95,000 articles, and 60,000 uh, implements of rubber for immoral purposes. Uh, not my quote, uh, his, <laughs> uh, but he, um, he lobbies Congress for the Comstock Law, which makes it a crime to mail obscene materials, contraceptives, contraceptives being an obscene material, to mail them, to, um, to mail information about them, to mail information about how to find out about how to find out about <laughs> contraceptives. So that's the Comstock, Comstock Law. This is 1873 when the Comstock laws were passed. We're talking about a case from 1960, 61. Right. Uh, was it on the, were Comstock laws on the books in a lot of states by this point? Uh, almost half the states in the country. Um, you know, I think it was around 24 states. So when, and considering that some states came in later, so more than half at the time. Uh, I think Connecticut's goes on the books in about 1879. Fascinatingly, the state representative who was its primary backer is P.T. Barnum, yes, of Barnum and Bailey Circus. And uh, that law stays on the books through to the time of this case. By the time this case comes around, really only Connecticut and Massachusetts have these laws on the books. Connecticut's law, uh, you know, the federal law was really concerned with mailing um, these. Uh, uh, Connecticut's law is concerned with the people who use them, including, you know, banning them in, in marriage, and concerned with people who aid and abet them. That would be usually the medical authorities. The uh, actual, some of the text of the Connecticut law read this way. And uh, any person who uses any drug, uh, medicinal article or instrument for the purpose of preventing contraception shall be fined not less than $50 or imprisoned, not less than 60 days nor more than a year or be both fined and imprisoned. In reality, by 1960, how often was this law enforced in Connecticut? Was it, were people getting arrested for it? You know, it's, it's hard to arrest someone for the use of contraceptives. Uh, so that's where the, the part of the statute that made it a crime to aid and abet was really important. And by and large, people were not getting arrested. Condoms, spermicide, was available in drugstores. It was available, though, for the purpose of disease prevention or feminine hygiene. Um, so if, as long as you sold a contraceptive device or con a contraceptive drug for other than contraceptive reasons, it was legal. Uh, of course, that didn't include the diaphragm or the pill. So those are still hard to come by. Uh, were people getting prosecuted? No, although an early case in 1940, a clinic was raided 
the nurses and doctors were prosecuted, State versus Nelson. They went before the Connecticut uh, Supreme Court of Errors, and they lost. The Connecticut Supreme Court of Errors said there are no exceptions, not even for, for doctors' prescriptions. These doctors had been told by a local attorney that writing prescriptions would, would be an exception to the law based on other cases in other states. Um, and the Supreme Court of Errors held that that was not the case and there were no exceptions to the Connecticut law. But it was not referred to or taken up by the Supreme Court at that point? No, that State versus Nelson was not appealed to the Supreme Court. There were uh, earlier federal efforts to uh, overturn Connecticut's Comstock law of Till, uh, Till, Tileson versus Ullman in 1943, and then Poe versus Ullman in 1961, uh, very close to the time of our landmark case tonight. What was happening with these cases? Right. In the Tileson case, um, it was a doctor trying to argue that the patient's life was at stake. And the court said, I'm sorry, you don't have standing to assert your patient's interest. In Poe versus Ullman, which happens in 1961, they want a declaratory judgment that this law could be enforced against them. And the court says, you know, it's not right. There's not a controversy. Nobody's been arrested. Um, nobody's been convicted. And so it's just not ripe yet. But if you look at Poe versus Ullman, the dissents from Douglas and Harlan, you have yourself Griswold in miniature. Uh, and if, if you can track so much of the language from the dissents in that case that said it's ripe. And by the way, here's how I would decide it if it came before me. And uh, we have a regular viewer of our series, uh, Wild and Wonderful, on Twitter, who writes, the penal aspects of the Comstock laws are rather ironic, insofar as a stint in prison is another way to prevent contraception. <laughs> Clever. Uh, so we get to uh, 1961. Here's a headline in the New York Times, Connecticut Clinic to Test Birth Control Laws. So there were a group of people uh, in Connecticut who decided they wanted to put this law to rest. And... Uh, what was the role of Planned Parenthood organization in this? Well, Planned Parenthood, uh, led by Estelle Griswold, um, in Poe, the 61 case, had recruited the three patients that would become the petitioners, uh, uh, in, uh, led by Dr. Buxton, Dr. Buxton's patients. Um, and uh, she was instrumental in helping Dr. Buxton find those patients and decide on that strategy. Um, Planned Parenthood then was instrumental in figuring out that once Poe, um, once the Supreme Court dismissed the appeal from Poe uh, because of lack of prosecution, um, no credible threat of prosecution, it was Planned Parenthood that helped, was the engineer of a strategy to set up a clinic so that the director and the medical director could get arrested to test the Connecticut law. So Planned Parenthood was operating around the state at this point? Uh, Estelle Griswold had explicitly set up a Planned Parenthood there. They had been in other areas of the state. I think they'd been in Hartford and New Haven. Well, so they had, they had actually a number of clinics um, that were operating throughout the state. And then the case that I mentioned, State versus Nelson, they all closed after that, mm. after that case. And then they started setting up clinics to for educational purposes and to lobby the legislature. Yes. Um, but the New Haven Clinic in, uh, at issue in Griswold is the clinic that started prescribing contraceptives. Before that, other clinics in other places uh, were just doing educational, other services that weren't banned by the law. Although Estelle Griswold reportedly uh, drove around the state with diaphragms in her 
car trunk, um, as well as Planned Parenthood was key in helping women get across state lines right. so they could seek contraceptives legally in other jurisdictions. We've got some uh, video, some film actually, from 1962 when CBS Network uh, did a report on the Connecticut birth control debate. And what's great about this is you're going to see Dr. Lee Buxton and Estelle Griswold in their own words describing how they put this test case together. Dr. Buxton, how did you become involved in this birth control case? Well, I am interested in taking care of patients in this institution. And when I'm prevented from taking care of patients the way they should be taken care of by a law that exists, I, I just happen to believe something ought to be done about it. Well, aren't people who want birth control information getting it in this state? If a woman can afford to go to a private doctor as a private patient and pay a fee, she can get contraceptive advice in Connecticut. But if she uh, hasn't the money to go to a private doctor, if she's a patient in our clinic here, for instance, uh, she can't get contraceptive advice here because we're not allowed to have a family planning clinic. And they're the ones that really need contraceptive advice from a socioeconomic as well as from a health point of view. And, and they're being discriminated against because of their economic status. Well, since, as you said, that many people who can afford to go to a private physician can get contraceptive information, how many people would you say there are in the state of Connecticut who are breaking the law every day? Connecticut has one of the lowest birth rates of any state in the United States. Now, you can't tell me that that's because they're carrying out either Puritan or Catholic ideals. Mrs. Estelle Griswold, the other defendant, is executive director of the New Haven Birth Control Clinic. Well, I think it's very evident that the law is unenforceable. I think if you had a policeman under every bed in the state of Connecticut, they still could not prove anything. Uh, we, have, we are continuing, uh, maybe illegally, but we are continuing our program of education and referral. Now, many, many women call in for information as to where they can get help. And for the past four years, we have been referring women to the three out-of-state centers, which just border the uh, boundary of Connecticut. And we have been subsidizing these centers financially for quite some time to help, uh, on, particularly on these indigent cases. I would say that we have had approximately 20,000 women go out in the last four years. So uh, some interesting aspects of that. First of all, both of them making the economic argument. Mm -hmm. uh, what's your reaction to that? A couple of things. Over the years, the uh, especially poor and minority women have sometimes asked the question, so when Dr. Buxton said, these are the people that really need it, um, in the literature, even today in the contraception uh, magazines, there's a question as to whether some poor and minority women feel that people who are better off from more elite institutions really want them to have it. You have the controversy over uh, President Nixon's national security memorandum where he says we have to contracept the third world or they're going to be threatening us with their numbers. You have the uh, debate in the 1990s when they were giving Norplant a kind of uh, longer-acting contraception to poor women in, in, in cities in exchange for money or gift cards. So that economic argument, it both makes a lot of sense to people. They say, oh my goodness, you know, people can't afford X number of children. But it also has engendered a bit of a backlash. Yeah, I, th I, I think that there is a complicated story. I mean, reproductive justice advocates have made it a, 
a centerpiece of their <laughs> advocacy to talk about how certain family planning projects really targeted women of color. Um, and that, it, you know, at, at the time that Griswold is being decided, states are not just repealing their family planning, their contraceptives <laughs> law. States are passing laws, creating programs to um, provide pa family planning. So there is at this moment, too, a population movement, a population control dynamic happening. That said, um, I think it's really fascinating that one of the understudied parts of Griswold that, is that the clinic saw itself as providing economic justice for its clients. It was a public clinic serving low-income women who couldn't afford private doctors, who couldn't get in a car and drive to Rhode Island. And that, that, that the message of, about curtailing poverty and poverty's effects on reproductive choice is an important one that I think even with its darker side um, is something to, to think more about. You're listening to C-SPAN's Landmark Cases. We will be back in a moment. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Uh, Rachel Rebuchet, you said earlier that the, the case, the earlier case, Poe, needed an arrest. That's why it didn't go to the court. So we're going to learn that part of the story. We're going to listen to uh, Dr. Buxton and Estelle Griswold's uh, subject, uh, that uh, Rosemary Stevens is her name, and she was part of this case, and she's going to explain how she came to be part of it. I was the witness against the doctor, Dr. Lee Buxton. I got involved through the Yale Law School. It, it seemed at the time that it was very difficult to find a witness. You needed a, a married woman who was plausible, whose husband did not object, and could stand up in court and give evidence. I was examined by Dr. Buxton. I was given further advice. Uh, Robert and I had gone directly from the clinic to the police station. Well, they wanted to know just about what had happened. In other words, yes, I did go to this birth control clinic. Yes, I did see Dr. Buxton. Yes, he did give me advice. Yes, I did see Mrs. Griswold. It was very straightforward. We'd accepted advice, but we hadn't actually used it. So the police, the policeman with, with sort of an avuncular charm sent us away to come back tomorrow and say they, that, the, the, that this had also been used. So it, it's proceeding step by step by step. There's another aspect to this, uh, even though that the folks in Connecticut were planning for this, didn't count upon. And we're going to meet next from, again, this uh, 1962 CBS news report about a neighbor whose name is James Morris, who got involved in this case, and we'll learn about uh, his role in setting the wheels in motion. Well, I'm 100% against birth control because it's immoral. It's the same as prostitution or abortion or in any other in those immoral things. When rock and roll came to New Haven, the mayor of New Haven 
threw him out of town. And probably every city in the, this side of the Mississippi threw the man out of town because he was against it. He realized it was against hurting the children. Well, when birth control come to the town, what did the mayor do? He says, when I called him, he says, that's not my department. Call, call uh, the police department. The police department says, uh, well, uh, call the, the pro I'll call the prosecutor. And the prosecutor says, we're not accepting your complaint. That's up to the police department. Finally, after I had to go to the press and to the radio and everybody else, I finally was allowed to file a complaint with the chief of police in New Haven. Just an ordinary citizen with five children who was, was never elected to office. I had to go to the chief of police and beg to file a complaint. So what do you both think of Mr. Morris and his role in all of this? I always like to make sure that, uh, you know, we don't judge people from the past by our same standards. And he was not alone in this. I mean, the, uh, the attorney for Connecticut was making similar arguments that straight out about morality. Um, I think the, the, the uh, I want to say it's the Anglican or Episcopal Church at the Lambeth Conference in 1930, only 30 years before, had declared contraception okay and only for married couples. This was a very different time, and things were changing drastically. Uh, as Rachel points out, the invention of the pill um, and all else that was going on in the 1960s, and a lot of people were very frightened about all the changes. And, but he was, he was not alone. Mm -hmm. So Connecticut found itself in court over this case. What happened? Well, they lost. <laughs> the, 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 so Planned Parenthood. Planned Parenthood lost uh, before, um, before uh, in the state court. Um, before the Supreme Court of Errors in Connecticut. Um, and the Connecticut Supreme Court refused to reconsider arguments that they had decided in Tileston and in Poe, uh, saying that the law was not unreasonable, it was not arbitrary, it was a proper uh, exercise of the state's police powers. And so Planned Parenthood appeals to the U.S. Supreme Court, which is ready to hear the case. Katie um, Rohrbach, whom we, we saw earlier, was an important part of this part of the process. Can you talk about what her role was? Well, she was the main attorney in the courts in Connecticut. Uh, she filed very forceful arguments at that point, introducing the idea that this was a violation of people's right of liberty and privacy. Um, previously, in the Tileston and Poe case, the arguments were more about this is a threat to people's life if you don't let them use contraception. But she is now introducing this idea that people have rights that may not be explicitly articulated in the Constitution, but they're very important for personal freedom. I think it also bears mentioning that uh, many of the laws that police morals were attempts to police women's sexuality um, and women's role, uh, women's sexuality in family formation, legitimacy, and other related issues. So extension of privacy rights to women and striking down laws that policed that sexuality, one consequence as well. Griswold versus Connecticut made its uh, way to the Supreme Court in, uh, and was heard in oral argument on March 29, 1965. Here's a look at the court in that time. The Eisenhower appointees included the Chief Justice Earl Warren, John Marshall Harlan II, William Brennan, uh, Potter Stewart. There were still Roosevelt appointees on the court, too. Hugo Black, and we'll talk about his uh, dissent later on, and William O. Douglas, who authored the majority opinion. A Truman appointee, Tom Clark, and uh, Kennedy appointees, Byron Wizard White and Arthur Goldberg. Uh, so we're going to listen to uh, Thomas, em uh, uh, Thomas Emerson's predecessor. You mentioned earlier that 
uh, a Yale law professor by the name of Fowler Harper, had initially headed up the legal team to present Connecticut's case to the Supreme Court. But he took sick and ultimately uh, passed away. And uh, that's when Thomas Emerson came into the case. But we have Fowler Harper, for you to listen to, talking about the arguments in this case. The current cases, uh, the case of Dr. Buxton and Mrs. Griswold, uh, the two who have just been convicted for, as accessories for prescribing and advocating contraceptive device, not only involve the due process clause uh, and their right to advise people uh, with respect to matters of their privacy, and Dr. Buxton's property interest in his profession, because he claims that this law prevents him from practicing his profession according to scientific principles and according to his own conscience. And thus, it takes his property without the process of law. There's also involved in this case the problem of freedom of speech under the First Amendment, which prohibits, uh, the for first and the 14th, which prohibits Congress and the states from passing any law abridging freedom of speech. Uh, certainly, one of the most intimate and sacred relations of life uh, is the relation of uh, a man and his wife in the privacy of their own home. And when the long arm of the law reaches into the bedroom and prohibits a man and his wife doing what they want to do and what medical advice suggests that they do, it seems to me that this is a merciless invasion of the freedom and liberty of the citizens of this country. So that's an outline of the thinking of the Connecticut uh, defendants in the case. There is something called a rational basis test that the court can apply to laws. And since Connecticut and Massachusetts were the only two states that had this, couldn't they have simply dealt with the case this way? Why did they go so far as, as to uh, develop uh, this legal framework? Right. So earlier, Rachel spoke of a state's police power. A state has the right to make laws that govern health, safety, welfare, and they used to also say morals, right? Health, safety, welfare, morals. And if a state makes these laws, ordinarily, a court takes a look at them and says, is this law rational? Is it related to a state interest that's within health, safety, welfare? You know what? It's fine. It's when a law touches a constitutional right that a court says, ah, now we're going to take a harder look at it. A little harder look today if it involves, say, um, a distinction between men and women, a really hard look if it has a race distinction, and a really hard look if it touches upon a fundamental right. And those fundamental rights, gee, some of them are in the text of, you know, the Bill of Rights. Griswold says some of them aren't, but they're still fundamental rights, and, and five out of nine members of the court can tell you what they are. So this is what um, you know, the Planned Parenthood of Connecticut wanted is let's have the court say it's a fundamental right and then they'll take a hard look at the states limiting it. It was interesting listening to Fowler Harper, though, talking about the 14th Amendment, due process clause, freedom of speech, First Amendment. So uh, how did it coalesce into the direction that it actually went? Well, I think that Planned Parenthood argued that all of those amendments had aspects of privacy that were fundamental to people's life and liberty. And so in their briefs then before the court, they said things like there are various amendments to the Bill of Rights, the first, the third, the fourth, the fifth, the ninth, the fourteenth, all of which appear uh, in Douglas's op opinion as having penumbras, <laughs> uh, that uh, protected the privacy of the home and the privacy of the marital relationship. 
and that that was a distinct set of fundamental, those, those amendments said something about marriage and the home that was different than other regulations that could pass the laugh out loud test. Mm -hmm a rational basis review in which if the state has any reason <laughs> for passing the law, it'll stand. But in this realm of private decision making, in these personal relationships, the state has to have a better reason. June 7th, 1965 was the day the decision was handed down. As a side note, our producer reminds us that's also the same day the Gemini 4 astronauts returned to Earth after the first U.S. spacewalk, big times in the 1960s. As we mentioned, it was a seven to, seven to two vote for the majority. And uh, there is the breakdown of the majority and the two dissenters, uh, Justice Stewart and Justice Black. But here is an excerpt from William O. Douglas's majority opinion. Would we allow the police to search the sacred precincts of marital bedrooms for telltale signs of the use of contraceptives? The very idea is repulsive to the notions of privacy surrounding the marriage relationship. We deal with the right of privacy older than the Bill of Rights, older than our political parties, older than our school system. Marriage is a coming together for better or for worse, hopefully enduring and intimate to the degree of being sacred. So uh, take us down his legal reasoning here. So this will answer the penumbra's question as well. What he says is, so there isn't in the Constitution a text that provides a constitutional or fundamental right to contraception. There is, however, this language in the 14th Amendment that also applies to the states that protects, uh, uh, excuse me, bah, I'm getting ahead of myself. No, he doesn't put it in the 14th Amendment. He says there is a right of privacy that it is part of, even if it's not explicit, in other amendments of the Constitution. In the first, he says, it says free speech, but we say there's freedom of association, which is kind of a privacy thing. In the right not to have your home searched, in the, in the uh, you know, you're right that not to quarter soldiers except under particular circumstances. He says, all of this speaks of a right of privacy. And he even mentions, but doesn't rely heavily on, the Ninth Amendment, which he says reserves things to the states that are not taken by the federal government. And he says, you know, the right of privacy is not in any of them. But if you look at this, these other things, these other elements of the Bill of Rights that I've mentioned, there are penumbras and emanations. There are... There are things without which the explicit rights are not really strong enough. And I'm going to say that the right of privacy is in that fuzzy penumbra emanation thing coming out of some of the first of the eight amendments to would the Bill of Rights. You, would you be kind enough to define the word penumbra for people watching tonight? <laughs> well, the shadow of, I mean, it's a, that he's, Douglas was ridiculed, Justice Douglas was ridiculed for using the term penumbra, you know, are you a Latin scholar, you know, and, um, and, and the, the idea that uh, there's a shadow cast by the amendments that concludes a privacy stake, a privacy interest that makes uh, 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 the first, third, fourth, fifth, ninth, fourteenth amendment do not make sense without some privacy background. And so privacy in the shadows lurching forward into the daylight. It's <laughs> a bit of the language of Justice Black. And uh, remember, as you're reading this, that Ju Justice Black is sometimes called the original originalist before Antonin Scalia got to the court. He wrote, there is no single one of the graphic and eloquent strictures and criticisms fired at the brethren, uh, excuse me, fired at the policy of this Connecticut law, either by the court's opinion or by those of my concurring brethren, to which I cannot subscribe. 
accept their conclusion that the evil qualities they see in the law make it unconstitutional. So what's he saying? So I, I think he, you know, he, Justice Black is focused on uh, just this debate we're having about the textual nature of rights, the originalist position, as you described. And he says, you know, there, there's no fundamental right to privacy because the Constitution only speaks of constitutional provisions designed to protect privacy at certain times with respect to certain activities. So if Justice Douglas, if his argument is strained, it's because how can you show that a law on married person's access and use of contraceptives helps protect, uphold, secure the Third, uh, the third Amendment uh, or, or the Fifth Amendment, of, of a right against self-incrimination. There's a gap there. And he says there's a gap that we're trying to uh, fill that doesn't make sense in light of a textual approach to the Constitution. So, you know, he's also famous for saying he liked his privacy as much as the next person, as much as the next one, but that without adhering to the text of the Constitution, the court becomes a day-to-day -day constitutional convention, uh, a super agency that sits in judgment over the legislature. Um, what should we know about Estelle Griswold or Dr. Buxton or Attorney Emerson? What, what happened to their lives after this case? Uh, I do know that in the case of Estelle Griswold, she ended up in a dispute with Planned Parenthood, and it was largely over like where the clinic should be and could she live in the gatehouse and take care of her husband there, and she did leave because of internal disputes, but was certainly a vocal supporter of women's right to contraception through to the end of her life. I think she died maybe in 1981. She lived a, a long 81 years. And eventually the, uh, the state of Connecticut put her in their uh, hall of fame uh, for accomplishments of people in the state. Uh, Buxton took a leave of absence from Yale in 1965. Just as the case was being heard, he lived until 1969. And Mr. Emerson continued teaching at Yale Law School, uh, died uh, in 1991, and never argued another case before the Supreme Court. From a historical perspective, when you do teach about this, uh, can you, what, what do you tell your students about these societal frameworks for the decision? Um, I usually talk about the technology of the pill and what a, a gigantic cultural moment that was. Um, I usually talk about picking your plaintiffs as a married couple. There were still lots of books on, uh, lots of books, lots of laws on the books in those days that forbade cohabitation, adultery, non-marital sex. So, um, you know, it, it, the pill came into, and the Griswold case uh, came into a pretty conservative country on sex. And so, um, I don't, didn't know about the protesters or, or the, the prayers outside the clinic. I usually talk more about the pill and the technological and cultural moment. And what do you tell your students? I, I often teach Griswold as part of a family law course, and so I tell my students um, a little bit about the parenting cases, the, the sterilization cases that came before Griswold that helped convince five, uh, the justices in Griswold that there was a fundamental right to privacy. And I do that because I think it gives a background to the ways in which we thought about parenting, marital, intimate relationships as something that, that needed a closer look, um, that helps make sense of some of the cases to come. Uh, and what are the limits to that right? That there are state interests, for, as I think Hesela mentioned, 
fortification laws, adultery laws. Um, those were good. Those were constitutional laws. Those laws still exist in states. Um, it, so, you know, they don't exist uh, in the number that they had in the past. Uh, but states still have a, a, a considerable amount of leeway in protecting the health, safety, morals of its population. There are about a dozen state constitutions and many, many statutes around the country that do speak explicitly to the right of privacy. But it sounds like, uh, from what Rachel just said, that there are going to be continual challenges to what the interpretations of those. Oh mean. yeah! In fact, one of the, the my students say when they've taken Griswold and and the the cases that came after it, they say, "I I didn't know this was a constitutional law class. I thought this was family law." And I say, "We are going to follow this fight over what is." substantive due process and the rights that the uh, Liberty Clause of the 14th Amendment provides, we're going to follow it right up to today. And Griswold is the place where you first get the interesting roiling in the family law context. That's well, a great place to leave it. Thanks to both of you for being at our table tonight. Uh, thank you to the National Constitution Center as we close here. Reminder, we've got many more cases to go. There's 12 in the series. We have a uh, a booklet that we've put together that has a synopsis for each one of the cases. You can find it on our website at uh, cspan.org landmark cases if you'd like to learn more about the background before we get to the table over the next few weeks. Thanks for being with us tonight.